I've had several friends over the years that have started businesses or even groups of pastors that have started churches or new ministry organizations. And many of them have gone quite well, but every once in a while, a year or two or three years in, the proverbial wheels fall off the cart and the business collapses or the church implodes. And you start to ask questions and have conversations. And one of the common problems that is often identified is a failure to define roles and responsibilities. A couple guys go into business together. They like each other. They're buddies. They don't take the time to determine who's in charge, what the lines of authority are, what the boundaries are for decision-making. And over time, conflicts erupt and they have different opinions as to which direction the company should go. And they go from friends to frenemies to enemies. And before long, the business falls apart because the partnership has not been defined. Now, as Christians, we are in a partnership with God. God has called us to be his ministering servants in this world. He's called us to speak on his behalf and interact with people on his behalf. Of course, we are not co-equals. He is supreme. He's the CEO. He's the eternal president of the relationship, but he's called us into a partnership. And fortunately, in the word of God, we have some definitions and some descriptions of what that partnership looks like. We have a very clear job description given to us. And Matthew 10, I think, is is quite helpful because it reminds us of what that job description really is. And I could put it to you in one sentence, if you like, as follows. We are partners in Christ's mission to seek and to save the lost. There's a lot of aspects to that, but fundamentally we are partners in Christ's mission to seek and to save the lost, to be light, as the Bible says, to be salt. Light brings things into view. Salt seasons things and preserves things. We are salt and light. People are born lost. They're rebels without a cause. They're separated from God but we can find eternal life and hope in Christ. And our mission is to partner with Christ as, again, not as equals, but as partners to seek and to save the lost. So what is it that God expects of us as we get into the world and are on mission for him? And by the way, just in case you're maybe thinking otherwise, this is not a message merely for people who want to serve. This is a message for the whole church. This is all of our responsibility. This is not, hey, thanks for letting us know what you're supposed to do this week, Aaron. Now, this is a message that helps each of us to see in part our Christian mission. So join me in Matthew chapter 10. I've entitled this first message, The Simplicity of Christian Mission. We're gonna skip the first four or five verses of the passage, but I'll give you a quick tip on what's going on there. Jesus had called unto himself 12 disciples, sort of the first disciples, and he declared them to be apostles, meaning he actually gave them many of his healing powers, his revelatory powers. I mean, these were like pretty significant individuals. And he sends them out into the world to be salt and light, to be his witnesses and testimony. But lest you think this is only for apostles, there's actually a lot of material here that benefits just common everyday disciples like me and like you as well. 
So in verse five of Matthew chapter 10, the word of God says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this is just a preliminary commissioning that Christ gives his early disciples. Just a few things to help us to understand the text. We have a reference to sheep here. It's not speaking literally of those little woolly things with short tails and hooves. He's speaking of people because God is presented to us in scripture as a shepherd. And shepherds take care of their sheep. So we are described broadly as sheep. I'm not sure if you consider that an insult or a compliment. But in scriptural terminology, that's one of the images that is used to describe the flock, the spiritual flock, the church. And Christ is the great shepherd. Now there's another word here, which you may or may not have heard of before. And it's the word Gentile. What's a Gentile? Well, broadly speaking, a Gentile is simply anyone that's not a Jew. The word itself means clan or tribe or nation. In Jewish history, it kind of became a bit of a derogatory term. It even, at times people would even say the Gentile dogs. Now, I know many of you like dogs. You have dogs. During the pandemic, you overpaid for dogs. But most ancient cultures weren't as excited about dogs as we are. They would maybe pay you to take them away. But it's doubtful that they would um, charge you money for it. So it was really an insult to be called a Gentile dog, but essentially in the text, the way this is functioning is it's someone outside of God's covenantal people. And then there's another term here, Samaritan. There actually are some Samaritans still living in Israel today, a very small group, probably only several hundred at this point, less than a thousand. But the Samaritans were a mixed people who were part Jew and part Gentile. So what had happened is when the Assyrian kings and Babylonian kings came in and started to carry off into captivity, the tribes of Israel in 722 and in 586 BC, they would then bring in people groups from other nations that they had conquered and sort of disperse them in the land so that you know the thorn bushes didn't get too high. And there was somewhat of a presence of people there. And the young Jewish men and young Jewish women that were left behind would meet the young Samaritan men and women. And you know what happens? People get married and a new people group was sort of formed. So that's not a bad thing to come from mixed heritage, but from a spiritual perspective, because of the way it all came about, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans with great disdain. They saw them as syncretistic of mixed faith symbolizing the compromise of God's holy people mixed with the world. So Jesus, in this early commissioning to his disciples, says, I don't want you to be talking to the Samaritans right now. And I don't want you to be talking to the Gentiles right now. I want you to start your ministry by going to the house of Israel, your own people. Now you remember later on in the gospels in Matthew 28, for example, when we have the great commission, this is more of a minor commission, but that's the great commission. 
Jesus says to all of his disciples, I want you to go into the world preaching the gospel. And he tells them to go to their Judea, their neighborhood, their Samaria, the Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. So God's ultimate goal would be that his people would go beyond their own neighborhoods and share the gospel. And that's part of our great commissioning. But at this point, their commissioning, their early commissioning was limited to their own people group. And you might think, well, that's kind of racist. No, it's not meant to be racist. Jesus, do you remember the woman at the well that Jesus ministered to who'd been married multiple times? She was a Samaritan. Jesus loved her, had compassion upon her offered forgiveness to her. So this isn't to be read as, oh, there's there's some racism in the Bible. Jesus is a racist. He only likes Jewish people. No, it's about strategy. You start with your own, you build a group of dynamic followers. You can then multiply that into Samaria and ultimately into the ends of the earth. But again, here in this early commissioning, Jesus sends his people out to serve him. So that's a little bit of background, but the point I would like for us to consider today, and this is point number one, if you're taking notes, when we ask the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? Point number one is to know your commission. Know your commission. What is it that God has commissioned his people to do? Well, we are commissioned to speak on his behalf, to declare the gospel. Again, for these men at this point in time, Limited geographical reach. In time, it would be a global exercise. And by the way, the majority of us, if not all of us, are beneficiaries of that. Because at some point, someone came to us in our sinfulness and shared the gospel with us, or perhaps shared it with one of our ancestors who shared it with us. And we've been beneficiaries of the fact that these early disciples took seriously the commissioning of Christ. And we should as well. In 80 or 100 years or so, there's not a single person in this room that'll be alive. At any point in time, the church could literally go extinct. We know it won't because Christ says he'll always build his church, but it could go extinct. Each of us has to take our commissioning seriously and share the gospel with the next generation. If you're a Christian parent, be strategic about the way you raise your kids. If you have a neighbor, be strategic about the way you interact with your kids. What is our commission? It's to go into the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not our own gospel. Not the gospel that is defined by public applause. Kind of notice that in culture. Oh, we we don't mind the church. As long as the church promulgates our message. But if the church starts getting too hyped up about Jesus or talking about salvation and sin, we're going to cancel you. That's the culture we live in. We're not called to preach this secularized, fake, false, lie-filled gospel. We're called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel defined by public applause, not the gospel defined by the social justice warriors. You know, it's interesting how the social justice warriors are amazingly quiet right now when it comes to people losing their businesses, people dying of suicides, marriages falling apart, people falling back into addiction. (laughs) Why? Because it's not popular. Social justice warriors are not into justice. 
They're into parroting and perpetuating the, the lies of culture. But that's not our job. Our job is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live it because our testimony is important. And we preach it because words bring transformation. That is our mission. What do we say? This is the second part of verse six. And proclaim to you, go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. What are we supposed to say? This is a preliminary introduction to the essence of the gospel. We are to go and proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then there are signs and wonders attached to the verbal proclamation of the gospel. The healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the cleansing of lepers that were like the, ooh, the yucky people of society that no one really wanted to hang out with. And casting out demons who had haunted and destroyed so many people's lives. So we're to know our commission and we're also to know our message and our mission. Now this passage of scripture doesn't give us the, the complete message, but it certainly gives us an adequate summary of it. And there's two aspects here. The one is the proclamation of the kingdom or to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I think if you were just talking as a Christian to your secular neighbor and you said to them, I would like to tell you something. And they're like, yeah, what would you like to tell me? The kingdom of God is at hand. They'd be like, what does that even mean? <laughs> the kingdom is at hand, huh? So we have to define these terms, right? So this is just a summary that believers understood, but we have to unpack it in words that people will understand. So what does it mean to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Well, kingdoms have what? Kings. So the first aspect of proclamation is to let people know who the king is. And you got to let people know who the king is, not just with your words, but also with your deeds. You got to demonstrate to the world, who's your king? People say, who's your daddy? Who's your heavenly daddy? Who's your king? Who do you rule? Or who, who rules you? Who, who determines your values? Who determines your responses? Who determines how you conduct yourself in your marriage? Who determines what your heavenly hope is? Your king does. Kingdoms are ruled by kings. So when we declare that the kingdom of God is at hand, we have to talk about the king. We have to introduce people to Jesus and demonstrate that we have surrendered ourselves to our true and living king. Secondly, we have to talk about what the kingdom is. The kingdom is essentially God's claim to rulership. In the gospel message, fundamentally, what Christ is doing is he's reminding you who rules you. We like to rule ourselves. That's sin. We like to be in control of our own destiny. That's sin. But in the gospel, we are reminded who rules us. Christ rules us. And we must learn to live under his sovereign rule, which, by the way, is always a blessing. But in our humanness, we, we balk at it. We, 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 we run from it. So we declare to people who the king is. We call people to surrender his sovereign rule. Then we live as kingdom citizens. What do kingdom citizens do? They proclaim the message of the kingdom. They're ambassadors for the king. Ambassadors aren't kings. 
ambassadors are in partnership with the king to declare his message, his will, his wishes into the world. We worship the king. We pay him homage. We honor him. And we serve the king. And we like to serve the king. We want to serve the king. And we never try to take the king's job away from him. This is part of the message of the kingdom. How many of you remember a prayer in the Bible called the Lord's Prayer? Remember that? In the old days, we used to pray it in school. It's recorded twice, once in the Gospel of Matthew, once in the Gospel of Luke, I believe. But in Matthew chapter 6, it says, Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. What's the next line? On earth as it is in heaven. Some Christians have the idea, of there's, we're, we're just kind of waiting for heaven, man. That's what it's, we're just waiting for heaven. Who cares about the here and now? The world's going to hell in a handbasket. So we're just going to be spiritually minded. We're going to stay away from the world. We're not going to engage the world. We're going to run from politics and education and science and medicine. We'll just let the world do all that. We're just waiting for Jesus to come back, just sitting on the hilltop in a lotus position, waiting for Jesus to come back. But in the Lord's prayer is informative. In the Lord's prayer, we're calling for the kingdom of God to manifest itself on earth. Now, the kingdom of God is not gonna fully manifest itself on earth because the Bible tells us that one day the world is gonna be destroyed, the heavens and the earth are gonna be burned up and there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. But in a certain way, and in a very real way, we want to see the, the values, the virtues of the kingdom play a role in culture and in society. We want the nations, even now, as has been the case at various points in human history, to understand who their true king is. You know, when that happens, people benefit. Wars slow down. Crimes slow down. Self-interest slows down. People are blessed by it. Why would you not want Christ's kingly rule as much as possible to come to this earth and for God's will to be done here as it is being done in heaven? So we, we want to incarnate the kingdom virtues in the here and now. So we proclaim the kingdom of heaven. And then it says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. The wonderful thing about these mighty acts of God that were done in, in, in pretty, uh, pretty amazing ways. It's, hap it's happened throughout human history, but especially in, those, in that first century when the church was being born, is that they demonstrated to the world in a physical way the new order that we anticipate in the eternal kingdom of God. Remember in the book of Revelation, it says that there will be no more crying, no more death. The old order of things have passed away. God has made all things new. God gives us a glimpse of that when he heals people, when demons are cast out, when lepers are cleansed. It's not going to happen all the time. Otherwise, nobody would ever die. But there are key points in history when God manifests his healing touch through his choice servants so that people might be assured in this world that the God who promises ultimate healing and ultimate rescue and ultimate cleansing is alive and well and working among us in the here and now.
In this respect, in this respect, heaven invades earth every now and then as people are healed and lives are touched. As a reminder, a bit of a sampling, a bit of a foretaste of what is to come. My middle son, I call him my spare son, Levi, is getting married in June to, to my favorite daughter-in-law, Elect. Elect, I have a, I have a daughter-in-law, but she's my favorite daughter-in-law, Elect, Julia. And Lord willing, they'll be able to have people at a reception. And they told me a week or two ago, they had to go to a sampling. They had to go and, we never did that stuff, but they went to a sampling to sample the meal that will ultimately be served at their reception. By the way, I wasn't invited, but her parents were invited. Why did they go? They wanted a sample. They wanted a foretaste. They wanted kind of to understand a little bit in advance what to expect. And in many respects, that's how miracles and healings and the work of the mighty apostles of old functioned. It's a foreshadowing. It's a foretaste. It's a sampling. It's not the complete banquet. Not everybody's going to get healed. People are going to die, but it's, it's a foretaste of heaven. And it serves to confirm and build up and encourage the people of God. Again, Revelation 21.4 says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's future. But every now and again, God reminds us in this world of what that's gonna look like. In the eighth verse of the same passage, it says, this is Matthew 10, you receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food and whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Here's the third point, rely on the Lord and let faithful followers provide for you. This is a message, especially for those that are vocational servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't need to be worried about provision. There's a lot of people that are like, I'd like to be a missionary, but uh, that's gonna cost a lot of money, so I'm not gonna do it. Well, I'd like to go into ministry, but I can't live off that kind of salary. So I'm just gonna go do something else. Well, I'd like to free up my schedule to serve more in the church and in the community, but I like the overtime hours. Now, this is not saying nobody should work, but it is a reminder to those, especially that labor at preaching and teaching in gospel ministry, don't let money slow you down. Trust that the Lord will provide for you. The text says the labor deserves his food. Just, just trust him, Lord, get out there, fulfill your calling, and when you go into a town, there's, there's gonna be some worthy people, some righteous people that will provide for your needs. A similar teaching is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, when it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And then while all elders must teach, some give themselves to teaching ministry. Not all elders give themselves to full-time teaching ministry, but it says, especially those, so of the elders, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So two illustrations there. If you got a couple oxen 
they're plowing the field for you and they're reaping a harvest. And you know, one of them bends down and grabs a corn cob. You're not like a bad ox. Drop that. You don't deserve that. No, you, you allow it to enjoy some of the fruit of its labor. Or if a laborer comes and lays brick at your house, you pay them because they deserve their wages. And in the same way, those that labor at gospel ministry deserve to be supported. But it's not, it shouldn't be on them to be sweating buckets wondering where their paycheck's going to come from or wondering where their next meal's going to come from. Worthy people will take care of that. Don't let yourself be held back from ministry because you can't afford it. You got to work overtime. You got to make sure all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted financially. There has to be a measure of trust when we're serving the Lord. Whether you're a full-time vocational worker or you, you decide to cut some hours at work because you actually want to do more direct ministry, gospel ministry, don't sweat it. Life's short. God will provide for you as you follow his lead. The text also says this, beginning with verse 12. As you enter the house, now this, this, by the way, I'm just telling you straight up is going to make some of you uncomfortable. So we have different personalities in the room. Some people are just very tender-hearted towards lost people. We should all be tender-hearted, but some people are very tender-hearted towards lost people, and just they they carry a daily burden for the lost, and they can't imagine the idea that you would ever be selective in where you do ministry. But this is what the Bible says. Check it out. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, just take it back. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave the house, when you leave that house or town. This is a, an actual ancient symbol of judgment. So you go into a town, they're like, we don't want to hear about this Jesus. We're not interested in the gospel. Well, inevitably you're going to pick up some dust on your feet and it's a sign of judgment to shake off the dust and say, I'm not even going to take part of you with me. Now the text goes on to say, truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, pretty heinous places, than for that town. I told you to make you feel uncomfortable. What's the lesson here? Bless those that are willing and leave behind the unwilling. Bless those that are willing and leave behind the unwilling. So as we do the work of the ministry, we will run into people that we could say are ripe for the picking. You go into an apple orchard, you look around, you don't pick the apples that haven't yet developed, you pick the ripe ones. You're out in your strawberry patch, you pick the ripe strawberries. You leave the rest behind. And in the same way as you engage with hundreds and thousands of people in your life, there's some that are going to be like, I want to hear more. I'm interested. Let's have a conversation. And others that are just perpetually get lost. I'm not listening to you. Take a hike. Some Christians actually make the mistake of over-investing in unripe fruit. And it actually can be of the devil. It can be a tactic of the devil to distract you from people that are ripe for the picking, from people that actually want to hear, that actually want to have a conversation. So we have to be, believe it or not, discriminate in the way that we engage in ministry. Our posture towards ministry should always be, is this person actually willing to listen? And if they're not, we walk. 
not, not to be cruel or not because we're heartless, but it actually reflects, believe it or not, the strategy of Jesus Christ himself. When he went into a town, if people were like, get out of here, Jesus, no one wanted to listen, shake the dust off his sandals, and he move on to the next town. But if they were willing to listen, the miracles would begin to fly, the sermons started to be preached, provisions started to be handed out, and people were blessed by it. One of my mentors told me many, many years ago, before I even went to Bible college, when I was sort of considering vocational ministry, he said, Aaron, let me just give you a piece of advice here. This will help you a lot. He said, just because there's an opportunity to serve doesn't mean you're the guy called to do it. I never heard that before. I thought, you know, if there's a ministry, I got to be the guy doing it or I'm disappointing Jesus. If there's a soul to be saved, a counseling appointment to be pursued, I got to be the guy. It's very freeing to understand that you're not the Holy Spirit. And at times, we spread ourselves too thin. We start to chase after unripened fruit. And it's just the devil's tactic to distract us from ministry. By the way, real practically, this is why even in the life of the church, we should always be willing to close ministries if they're no longer bearing fruit. There's no such thing as a perennial ministry at our church. Well, that's the way we've always done it. You know, those are the last words of a dying church. We've always done it that way. I mean, nobody's showing up, but we want to be faithful because faithfulness after all is doing the same thing over and over again without fruit. That's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is doing what God has called you to do and watching God bear fruit. Maybe there's only one apple a year that is to be plucked. Maybe you're pulling bushel baskets off the trees, but there's got to be some fruit born from your ministry or you're wasting your time. So ultimately, good reminder, we aren't God. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. Do not labor in fruitless ministry. Don't cajole, don't manipulate people into the faith. I, I know what this is like, because I have some people in mind right now that I've been praying for and I've been pursuing probably even more in the past some of them, I, I pursued and prayed, prayed for them for years. There's no fruit. And, and while it's sad that they're not willing to listen and to trust in Jesus Christ, you realize I, I cannot, my life is limited. I can't spend all my time trying to be the Holy Spirit, trying to convince someone a new tactic, a new angle. Let God be God. Let God ripen the fruit. Pray that God would give you ripe fields to harvest but if you look out in the fields, not yet ripe, you don't go out there. We live in the county. You know, the, 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 the winter wheat is starting to come up. You don't, you don't see combines out there right now trying to skim off the top. There's no grain yet. And they're not going to be out there in six weeks either. They're going to wait until the grain has risen to its full height and has ripened. And then they bring the combines in. Sometimes Christians are out in winter wheat in the spring looking around for grain, and there is none. If there's none, get out of the field and go find a field somewhere else that you can pluck the wheat from. So what do we have here in this first message? We need to stay focused on what Christ has called us to. We need to stay true to his message. As we go about ministry, we need to trust God to provide for us, and we need to be strategic in how we do ministry 
And then we just sit back and we let God use our methods, our ministry, our message to bear fruit to his honor and glory. So may this simple message reorient you and strengthen you and encourage you as you seek to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and a representative of his purposes even this week.